Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Jason Mokhtarian about his new book, Medicine in the Talmud, Natural and Supernatural Therapies Between Magic and Science, which will be published by University of California Press in June 2022. Jason Mokhtarian is an associate professor in the Department of Near Eastern Studies at Cornell University, where he holds the Herbert and Stephanie Newman Chair in Hebrew and Jewish Literature and starting in July will be the director of the Jewish Studies Program. He's also the author of Rabbis, Sorcerers, Kings, and Priests, The Culture of the Talmud in Ancient Iran, which was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in Scholarship. And he is a co-editor of the Alamot series at Indiana University Press, which translates innovative books by Israeli scholars on a range of topics in Jewish studies. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. And I wonder if you would just start out by telling us a bit about your own background, your academic background, and how you became interested in this topic. Yeah, sure. So I was trained in both Jewish studies and Iranian studies at the University of Chicago and UCLA, uh, with a specific focus on the study of the Babylonian Talmud in its wider historical context of Sasanian Persia. And within the field of late antique Judaism, this is a relatively small niche field uh, since it requires interdisciplinary training in ancient Iranian languages and history. So my first book, which you mentioned, uh, published in 2015, also by University of California Press, uh, was on this latter topic and is titled The Culture of the Talmud in Ancient Iran, as you said. And in that book, I analyzed the portrayals of Persians in the Talmud while engaging with the basic problems of comparative religion between Jews and Zoroastrians. So after writing that book, I, I wanted to take that project of contextualization of the Talmud one step further to try to show how the Talmud and the rabbis who produced it were influenced not only by Persian culture of the time, uh, but also by other religious communities, including Christians, Zoroastrians, uh, I'm sorry, Christians, Mandaeans, and pagans, uh, as well as by non-Rabbinic Jews. And so in thinking through what topic would best achieve that goal, I came to recognize pretty early on in my research that medicine would be ideal for this, in large part because as a so-called scientific discipline in antiquity, uh, Rabbinic medicine was largely indebted to cross-cultural exchange with these outside communities in Persia. Now, um, at the same time that I, that I came to the realization that medicine would be a good case study, uh, I became interested in the topic of medicine for several other reasons. So for example, um, first, it's a topic that's been largely ignored and marginalized by scholars of Talmud, which means you know, basically that I felt there was an opportunity there to make a contribution and to hopefully do something slightly innovative and to recover a marginal topic and to sort of educate people on something that they may not know a lot about. Uh, the second reason I became interested in medicine in the Talmud 
was because it served as a bridge between the Talmudic corpus and the other major corpus of writings from the Jews of Sasanian Mesopotamia, uh, namely the Aramaic incantation bowls. And these latter artifacts were, for all intents and purposes, uh, mostly aimed at healing clients and are therefore, you know, just logical comparanda for Talmudic medicine. So in other words, I wanted to choose a topic and a theme in the Talmudic corpus that would allow me to explore the connections between the Talmud and the magic bowls, respectively. Uh, and then the third reason that I became interested in medicine and the Talmud is um, I wanted to try to problematize a little bit more the longstanding category of magic that scholars in the field often use. Uh, and I thought that healing or medicine would be a good way to do that. So it's basically just another trajectory into the materials that overlaps with magic, but takes a slightly different angle. And then um, finally, before we move on, let me just add that um, the Talmudic therapies are, I, I hope, uh, at least to me, just inherently interesting texts and materials to learn about. And this was, in fact, something that I came to, to realize uh, actually first in the classroom in a course on rabbinic literature with undergrads. Uh, which generated these texts basically just generated some of the best discussions in those class. And so I really sort of actually discovered this topic in the classroom. So, um, so I think those are the, the main reasons why I became interested in the topic. Wow. And I have to say, reading the book, some of those therapies were really fascinating. Oh, thanks for saying um, that. Yeah. Particularly the, you know, if not, then, you know, if this doesn't work, then sit at crossroads and wait for a busy ant carrying a heavy load to come by and put it in a metal tube and, you know. Yeah, for sure. Actually, actually, why, why don't I read one of the therapies, if that's okay? Um, oh, please. Yeah, yeah. I've chosen one or two for our discussion. And I think maybe before we move on, maybe it would be it would be nice for the audience to hear one or two of them just so that they get a sense of, of what they say. And I, I really like the ant one, but I, I actually chose a different one. Um, so this this is actually um, a therapy that's found in, in the Talmud, in Tractate Avodah Zarah, uh, which is for um, what's called an anal fissure, basically a, a cut in, in, the, uh, in the anus. And this is, this is what the Talmud prescribes. It says, bring the fat of a virgin she-goat melt it and smear it on the fissure. If not, bring three gourd leaves that were dried in the shade, burn them, pound them in a mortar, and spread the ashes on the fissure. If not, bring snail shells and burn them and stick them on it. If not, bring an ointment of bitumen and attach it to rags from worn out linen rags in the summer and cotton rags in the winter. So that just gives uh, gives you all a flavor of what you see in these therapies, and, and in this case, as you mentioned, Rachel, there's there's all these if nots, right? Which basically implies that you try one therapy, and if that doesn't work, you do another. There are other ways to understand the if not formula, but that's one of them. And so here you can see that for the most part, these are these are mostly empirical techniques, right? Basically using different ingredients from nature to as a salve to basically put on on the fissure. So um, I, I hope that at least gives, a, you know, that's one example. I can give another one as we go through our discussion, but just to give the audience a sense of what these therapies look like. Yeah. And I think you can get the idea that as you say, those sound empirical, but they also sound, you know, in some ways, maybe a bit magical. And I know you're going to get to that uh, distinction or not distinction. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, for sure. We can talk more about that. I mean, I, I think that the I purposely chose one of the more empirical ones, but there are absolutely um, just as many therapies that are more magical, by which I essentially mean that they use um, powerful words, uh, incantations, so to speak, to, to heal someone of their uh, bodily afflictions. Um, or even amulets of sorts that one wears on the body to, to heal. So yeah, there's, there's both magical and empirical therapies, so to speak. Sometimes you find both elements, uh, magical and empirical elements within a single therapy. Uh, so there's examples of that as well. And you know, one last thing to say on that topic, and then we can move on, is that, of course, in the ancient world, there wasn't necessarily a distinction right between magic and empiricism. These are, these are more modern uh, concepts that we impose on the materials. Um, but that said, they, they may have had an understanding, obviously, in a variety of ways of the differences. But, um, but yeah, the one that I read is more empirical, but by all means, there are 
lots of magical ones as well. Yeah. Well, we may get back to that. Um, but first, I thought maybe we, we could start sort of at the beginning by establishing the basis of medicine in the Talmud. And where in the Talmud do we find medicine? And what sort of medical discussion is there aside from these uh, therapies? Sure. Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, I think first, first of all, I think it's important to note that uh, medicine is, is obviously not the first topic that one expects to encounter when studying Talmud. Uh, on the contrary, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, or sometimes called the Bavli, if I use that word, that's what I mean, which was produced by the rabbis in late antique Persia from the 2nd to 6th centuries, uh, the Bavli is by and large a vast collection of rabbinic laws and narratives. So really on its surface, it has nothing to do with medicine at all. Um, nevertheless, uh, that said, as scholars have increasingly come to recognize, upon closer inspection, the Bavli also contains all sorts of other materials, right? Not law, not narrative, including, as my book shows, many dozens of medical therapies. So um, the rabbis were very clearly invested in the healing arts. And uh, indeed, it is by far the largest repository of texts on healing and illness in ancient Jewish literature before the rise of Islam, and refers to well over 70 different bodily afflictions, ranging from all, all sorts of things, ranging from simple toothaches to more serious conditions like the failure of, of internal organs. Now, to heal these afflictions, the Talmud recommends a whole range of techniques. Uh, everything, as we just discussed, from spells and amulets to natural drugs and baths and everything in between. Uh, some therapies, as we said, are more superstitious or magical. Others are more empirical. And among the empirical ones, which is really what my book is mostly interested in, uh, many of the afflictions are remedied, for instance, through potions or mixtures of materia medica that the sick person eats, drinks, or applies to the affected area, uh, as we saw in the case of an anal fissure. Uh, other cases, for instance, right, one can smear uh, salves of acacia and aloe to treat hemorrhoids or bathe in boiled plants to cure strangury or to staunch a bloody nose by in essentially inserting tampons with medicine on them into the nose. So the empirical background to these uh, techniques is, is quite notable. And presumably, there was some sort of process of trial and error and observation behind them, although the Talmud never really records what those processes were, which is, which is a bit odd. Um, so another thing to note here is that these sorts of Talmudic therapies are, um, in, in fact, quite different from the way that most other Jewish texts in antiquity uh, describe the way that Jews handled their health problems. So in general, the Bavli endorses human treatments over divine intervention. In other words, faced with the dilemma of whether to trust one's health to God as the Bible advocates or to human physicians and to plant-based drugs, the Babylonian rabbis were in favor of the latter. So they actually downplay the role of God in human health, which is quite interesting. Now, in terms of where in the Talmud you find these medical therapies, most of them are actually found in three specific clusters uh, within the Talmud. And these are found in Tractates Gitin, 68b to 70a, Avodah 27a to 29a, and Shabbat 108b to 111b. Now, the first of these sources, Gitin 68b to 70a, uh, or what I refer to as the Gitin Book of Remedies, is an independent medical handbook based on an Akkadian Vorlaga, as the leading scholar in Talmudic medicine, Mark Geller, has convincingly argued in several important articles on the topic. And essentially what happens is this independent handbook gets redacted into the tractate and into the Talmud, and actually has very little rabbinic materials in it. That is to say, it's mostly anonymous and doesn't have much to do with rabbinic law or storytelling. So it really is, at the end of the day, just simply a list of, of remedies. Now, the other two medical clusters that I mentioned um, are actually more interwoven with rabbinic legal concerns, uh, and the rabbis make more of an appearance in those two sources. So there is, a, there is sort of a diverse array of sources, but for the most part, 
these are the three main clusters of texts. Having said that, you will find other, other examples of medical sources and remedies and discussions throughout other places in the Talmud, but those are the three sources that, um, that I would want to mention in the context of where you find, where you find them. Hmm. And it sounds like from what you say that these, and also from reading the book, that these therapies are meant as practical advice. And as you say, they've been tested empirically with some uh, rational approach, even you might say at times a scientific approach. So I wonder, would you explain why medical therapies in the Talmud have historically been marginalized? And I think it's been at various times in history by various groups of people that they've been marginalized. Yeah, that's a great question. And it, and it really is, I think, one of sort of the the main points of the book is to is to describe this marginalization and then to to basically show how my book is hopefully right recovering some some of that um, some of these texts from from that history of marginalization. So um, I think there's a few reasons why the Talmudic therapies have been marginalized in the Jewish tradition. Uh, first off, um, let's turn to sort of the early the so-called early reception of Talmudic medicine by the Geonim, who were the heads of the rabbinic academies uh, soon after the Talmud was redacted, and then the later Talmudic commentators in the, in the medieval period. Uh, so again, these are some of the you know, most formative and knowledgeable interpreters of, of the Talmud. Now, most of these individuals, not all of them, you will find um, exceptions to the rule, but most of them uh, rejected the value and the efficacy of the Talmudic therapies uh, in favor of the scientific knowledge of their own times, which was, for the most part, largely based on the dissemination of Greek medicine. So, in other words, the rise of Greco-Arabic medicine in particular led the, these later Jewish communities and authorities to reject the earlier paradigms and assumptions that the Babylonian rabbis used um, which were by and large not Hellenistic, and, and that's part of, it's part of the logic. So perhaps the most famous in this regard would be the medical writings of Maimonides, uh, which has very little basis in Talmudic thought and instead follows the Galenic ideas of his time. So I talk a little bit about Maimonides in the book for that reason. Now, one sees the skeptical attitude towards Talmudic medicine already as, as early as the 10th century. Um, and part of what happens here is that the the authorities in the 10th century and later um, have to deal with a problem, uh, right? The problem is, is, is essentially when you reject Talmudic medicine, essentially you're implying that the rabbis were not authoritative, right? So how do you navigate that? How do you, how do you basically on the one hand say, we're not going to practice these therapies, but on the other hand, you don't want to undermine the authority of the ancient rabbis. So these medieval, mid, medieval authorities uh, found clever ways to explain away that negative implication. Uh, and part of what, a couple of ways that they did this was, for instance, they actually argued that it was their own deficiencies that led them to not practice the Talmudic therapies. So, for, for example, they say that they themselves are unable to correctly identify the plants in the Bavli, uh, thereby making it impossible for them to even practice it, practice these therapies if they wanted to. Uh, so that's sort of one clever way that they get out of out of that problem. Uh, other medieval commentators argued uh, that the biological makeup of human beings and the natural world uh, had evolved through the centuries, such that the older therapies uh, in the Talmud had in fact become passé in their own time period. So Rab Sharira Gayon, the head of the Pumbendita Academy in the 10th century, sums up these attitudes towards rabbinic remedies when he writes simply that our sages were not physicians, right? I really like that quote because it really sort of summarizes their position. And Sharira Gayon adds another important point, which is, and, and you mentioned this already, Rachel, which is that the, the Talmud actually doesn't make the therapies obligatory, right? Uh, for Jews or for rabbis to practice, nor to even study. And so I think that, you know, that in some ways undermines, uh, you know, any sort of responsibility that later generations would have to practice them. So the therapies are not described in any normative way. They're not framed necessarily in terms of permitted versus forbidden actions on their own terms. Um, although that said, right, there are sometimes discussions 
uh, about these therapies and, and medical practices more broadly vis-a-vis other rabbinic re- regulations, such as the laws of the Sabbath. Um, but Rav Sharira Gayon, to come back to him, to circle back, um, simply writes, right, that the medical therapies are not commandments, right? So I really, I really like that quote. Now, that's, that's sort of one one end, uh, one way to answer that question, the more historical way. The, the other side of that is why is it that modern Talmudists, right, uh, academic Talmudists, I mean, uh, in the past, let's say, four or five decades or so, haven't, um, haven't given the Talmudic therapies a lot of attention? Um, so obviously, one of the reasons is because, as I just described, historically, they've been marginalized. Um, um, but there are other reasons for this neglect. Um, as I, as I said, um, uh, as, as I alluded to earlier, let me say, um, many of the, many of the approaches towards Talmudic medicine have been under the category of magic. And essentially what that means is that a lot of scholars who study healing and do so in the context of Jewish magic tend to actually ignore the more empirically oriented therapies. And so basically they, they don't study them because they're not magical. So that's one reason for the neglect. Uh, the second reason, as I mentioned, is the marginalization, uh, historical marginalization. And then the third reason, and I think that this is in some ways the most interesting one to me at least, um, uh, is that Talmudists have, I think, um, I, I hope I'm not wrong in, in, in making this assumption, have have believed that one actually needs to possess some sort of expertise in the medical sciences, that is to say, sort of more more uh, being trained as a medical doctor uh, than, uh, than a Talmudist in order to properly understand the therapies. Uh, I don't think that this is true, obviously. Um, I'm certainly not a medical doctor or trained in biomedical sciences in any way, uh, because the archaic nature of the remedies doesn't really require technical knowledge of today's biomedical sciences uh, as much as it does, at least in my opinion, of expertise in Talmud, Aramaic, Sasanian history and culture, and of course, the history of, of medicine as well. And let me just say one more last, let me say one last thing about this, and then we can move on, which is, um, and this is really fascinating to me, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, actually, um, is that there actually is tons of scholarship out there on Talmudic medicine. I mean, it's, it's actually overwhelming when you begin to dig, dig deep on the subject. Now, as I said, it's not by academic Talmudists. The overwhelming majority of that scholarship has actually been produced by medical doctors or by scientists who aren't trained typically in the study of Talmud from an academic perspective, but who are interested in these materials, um, usually because they're Jewish uh, and want to harmonize ancient Jewish religious traditions, medical traditions with contemporary biomedical thought or things like that. And so this then leads to sort of a a different approach than what academics would take um, that often leads to anachronisms and apologetics which are problems that academics like me usually try to avoid. So uh, in sum, while Talmudists have failed to research the therapies on account of their marginalized and ineffective and technical nature, it's actually the opposite perspective that's motivated medical doctors and scientists to study them, namely the view that Talmudic medicine is scientifically valid or the earliest attestation of contemporary knowledge and hence worthy of pride. So this issue of marginalization is, I think, core to the book. And I really appreciate you asking that. And I I hope that I gave at least a few reasons for why that has happened. Yeah, you certainly did. And I want to follow up on something you said there at the end uh, about the medical doctors, professionals, or people who are interested in medical history, uh, writing about medicine in, in the Talmud, because I think, and I think this comes up more and more as there's an increasing interest in indigenous medicine and traditional kinds of medicines, that it's very interesting to us now to look back at how people in ancient times defined disease and illness and treated disease and illness. And it's tempting, as you note, uh, to superimpose our modern understanding of disease, illness, and medicine on their experience. But as you write about, there are pitfalls so what are pitfalls? You, you sort of touched on it here, but what are some of the pitfalls of succumbing to that um, superimposing modern biomedicine 
on this historical medicine? And what are the alternatives to doing that, which I think you're probably the alternative? Sure. Yeah, great question. Uh, I think that that's sort of a natural question based on what I just said. So um, this is obviously one of the well-known problems in the history of medicine, right? How, how do we, in, in the 21st century, um, respond to, think about, analyze uh, ancient medicine, which obviously had a very different uh, knowledge base of all aspects of, of science and the human body than we do today. So um, it's obviously it's very easy for us today to judge and to dismiss ancient medicine as as ineffective and superstitious, right? Because of the stark contrast be- between the way that they did things vis-a-vis our modern knowledge of human biology and medicine, right? So this is a very large and complex topic. Um, so why don't I just try to focus then on, on one specific aspect of this, which is which I talk about in the book, and which is um, the problem of identifying ancient diseases and drugs. Uh, sometimes scholars have referred to this problem as uh, the problem of retrospective diagnosis, right? In other words, how do we just know that this particular term in Aramaic should be translated in this and this way, and that it's it's referencing this type of disease, right? Because obviously the Talmud is written in an old Aramaic language, and it's not always easy to to know and to identify exactly what uh, affliction they're they're referring to, as well as a particular plant or drug. So the basic question is then whether scholars today can, uh, in fact, use modern English terms to describe ancient Aramaic ones, and then what are the pitfalls of that, right? So, you know, it's funny. This, this is all, it's, it's a bit paradoxical. It's kind of a, a trap, if you will, um, because it's often the case that in the study, in, in particular in the study of ancient medicine, that by necessity, one of the first steps that we as scholar, that, that scholars take is to produce translations and critical editions of these medical sources, uh, basically to make them available to scholars to study. And so many of the sources that we have are, in fact, still untranslated, not so much in the Talmud, but with a lot of the other corpora out there. So the problem with that, of course, as I've already said, is that once we translate an ancient disease or drug into our language, we automatically, I believe, confuse uh, and allied our modern concepts of them with the way that the ancient rabbis, in our case, understood those terms, right? So basically, it's it's a problem of, of linguistic and cultural translation, right? Now, there are numerous things that stand in the way of precise identifications of ancient diseases, right, that even go beyond sort of the linguistic problems. Let's just talk about sort of the scientific side of things. So for instance, as we all know from COVID, right, um, pathogens can mutate over time, uh, such that in certain cases, a virus that existed in antiquity could not possibly even be the same that uh, that exists today, right? Even if we're, in other words, even if we're able to identify that term as somehow corresponding to the modern, same modern pathogen, right? Biologically, that pathogen can simply just change over time in terms of an evolutionary model, right? Another case of this would be, you know, that parasites that cause disease can follow human migrations. And so it's not the case, it's not always going to be the case that the diseases or the parasites that the rabbis were exposed to are even relevant for, you know, 21st century America, et cetera, right? So basically a geographical problem, right? There are changes, of course, in technology and the role of animals in communal life that has an effect on the history of diseases. There's changes in the environment, so on and so on, right? So in other words, even from like an evolutionary model, it's very difficult for us to claim that the diseases in the ancient world can in fact be understood using modern terminologies and based, uh, you know, based on essentially the diseases that exist, exist today, broadly defined, right? So, you know, these considerations all create a situation where it just seems unlikely that we can define a certain Aramaic term uh, based on our modern version. Now, one of the best examples of this, or maybe I should say well-known examples of this um, in, in ancient Judaism would be the case of biblical leprosy. 
which numerous scholars have proven actually is not the equivalent of modern leprosy, right? So there is, there is this well-known case of leprosy that I think can help to illustrate this. So basically what this all leads to is a misunderstanding of our, of our true subject matter, right? The rabbis of late antiquity. Um, and I would add, as I mentioned earlier, that even the Talmudic commentators are already acknowledging these issues, right? As I said, they, they themselves acknowledge that there are changes in nature over time. They themselves acknowledge that they don't, they don't properly understand the terms in the Talmud. So this, is, this should be not surprising that uh, we today have these same sort of issues. So, um, so let, let me just say to, to, to end, um, in, in conclusion, uh, in conclusion that we do, uh, despite all those problems, we do have a variety of tools that can nevertheless help us gain greater specificity, uh, about what a specific disease or plant was in the Talmudic period. Um, obviously the, the best data that we have is how a particular text describes a certain affliction, right? If, if it's a long text and it gives details about, about the symptoms, about where on the body it is, maybe even about the remedy for it, right? Sometimes one can glean from that what the affliction is. Uh, so that's usually um, very helpful, obviously. And that's one of the main ways that we're able to deduce what, what a disease is or affliction is. Another way, of course, and this is one of the best ways, but also in my opinion, you know, still one of the one of the problems is the linguistic and comparative linguistic data that's available. Uh, so, for instance, it, you know, the Talmud is written in Jewish Aramaic, but if we have other Aramaic dialects that have the, a cognate term or the same term, and that that term appears in a medical source in Syriac or Mandaic or whatever it is, right? We can use that comparative data to figure out what the Talmudic term means, uh, and that's very commonly done. And then finally, you know, when available, which admittedly, you know, this type of data is slim in the case of the Babylonian Jews, to the best of my knowledge, there's non-textual data, things like archaeological data, paleopathological evidence, which can, again, help, help from a scientific perspective, uh, gain more insight into the types of diseases that people faced at this time period. So, you know, in the end, what I would say is that Obviously, right, scholars have to simply do the best that they can with under the circumstances that they're faced with and with the limitations that they have. And at the end of the day, what I argue in the book is that the most important thing for a scholar to do when studying these types of texts and, 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 and studying ancient medicine is to address these topics, right? As long as you um, discuss these topics, you know, explain to people what your perspective is on them. Um, illustrate that there are problems, then you can comfortably move forward despite all of these limitations that I described. Hmm. Yeah, and it makes it sound even more mysterious when you realize that we don't even understand what the diseases were. And so it's no wonder some of the therapies sound quite strange to us. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, you know, the rabbis themselves in the Talmud, themselves they, they themselves debate often what a disease even is and what a plant, what the, uh, the plant that's being used as a drug is. So they themselves are even grappling with these problems within the Talmud itself. And, and uh, so, yeah, absolutely. These, these are age old problems that we all deal with. So it's not surprising that there is this confusion over terms and translations and things of that sort. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hmm. That makes me think, I wonder if we could just revisit the um, the tension between interpreting therapies as either magic or medicine here. And you know, as that's part of your subtitle as well. Because as, you know, not understanding exactly um, the cultural context and, it's, you know, I'm reading your interpretation in the book of, or your translation in the book of these different remedies. And I say, huh, that sounds really strange. That sounds like magical thinking. And yet, 
as you explain it, magic is not really an appropriate concept or coming up with a dichotomy between magic and medicine isn't appropriate. So um, could you just explain maybe what are the considerations there and, and, and why did you decide to take the approach that you did? Sure. Yeah, so as anyone who studied ancient magic knows well, uh, there's been a very long debate among scholars in a variety of disciplines, uh, including, of course, anthropology, regarding the pros and cons of using the category magic to study what we study. So there's a whole spectrum of opinions on this, ranging from one extreme to the next. Most people find some sort of uh, middle ground. Um, So my approach in this book... Uh, recognizes that scholars of late antique Judaism have for the most part researched the topics of healing or medicine as subcategories of of the category of magic. So on the one hand, there's no problem with this, uh, since healing was obviously one of the, the core aims of ancient Jewish magical texts and artifacts like amulets and magic bowls, right? Magic and healing obviously go hand in hand. And ancient Jews believed in the power and efficacy of things like sympathetic rituals uh, and potent words and objects to help them control uh, dangerous supernatural demons and bodily illnesses. So uh, to summarize the point then, um, it's true that many of the Talmud's therapies are in fact magical, which is, you know, obviously we we could unpack that word to the extent that they avail themselves of amulets and spells and sympathetic logic, uh, among other features that scholars would often characterize as as magical. So, you know, magic and medicine were clearly intertwined phenomena in late antiquity. So I don't want to dispute that. But on the other hand, uh, as I argue in the book, uh, it's equally important to remember that in the Talmud, not all magic is medicine and not all medicine is magic. So these are, in some ways, also different categories. So scholars who subsume Talmudic medicine and Talmudic healing under the category of magic, as I mentioned earlier, tend to ignore the therapies that have few, if any, identifiable magical elements. And it's these latter therapies, the more empirical ones, so to speak, that I'm most interested in in my book. Moreover, the fact that the study of healing under the category of magic does not typically include the so-called empirical therapies uh, shows in in itself the limitations of the use of magic as a definitive category. And so while in principle, I I don't object to the use of magic as a category of inquiry, uh, I instead in this book chose to expand the lens uh, to, to medicine basically as a way to reformulate our approach to healing in the Talmud. So in short, once we replace the category medicine with the category, uh, I'm sorry, once we replace the category of magic with the category of healing or the category of medicine, uh, the topic then becomes open to therapies that aren't magical, right? So we're we're basically able to take a more holistic approach And so following in the footsteps of uh, theorist uh, Jonathan Z. Smith, who I quote in the book, among others, uh, I believe that medicine or, or, you know, just more broadly healing therapies for bodily illnesses is a more specific category than magic and helps to add nuance to scholarly evaluations of rabbinic healing practices. And so in a sense in the book, I've tried to invert things such that magic actually now becomes a subcategory of healing uh, or medicine, as opposed to the other way around. And finally, I would just say that in my view, this tactic is useful if for no other reason in that it simply rejiggers Talmudic data in a novel way by focusing on the empirical therapies that typically get excluded from studies on magic proper. So um, I have a lot more to say on that, but I think I'll leave it there. And, and again, I think that this is one of the uh, core arguments of the, of the book. And so I really appreciate you asking that question and giving me a chance to explain that. Yeah, thanks. And I think even when something seems magical, like amulets, for instance, they used a sort of scientific approach in that uh, there had to be an, an N of three for the amulet to be proven um, effective, 
That's right. You know, if it was tested on one person, that was insufficient, two people insufficient, but three people, uh, it was then deemed effective. Yeah, that's right. There is this famous text in, in Tractate Shabbat, which I discuss in the book, that says this, right? So this, this again, this shows, this demonstrates sort of the blurring of boundaries between magic and empiricism, you know, categories that are that we use today in the minds of the rabbis. So exactly as you said, right, uh, the, the passage basically describes that one has to test an amulet three times or let me say it differently, one has to prove an amulet to be effective three times in order for that amulet to be deemed effective, right? So basically, there is this trial and error process for a so-called magical artifact, right? An amulet, which we today, from our scientific perspectives, uh, would claim doesn't really work, of course, right? But they still nevertheless had sort of testing procedures for the amulets. So you can see there that the, that there's a blurring of boundaries, right, between magic and empiricism. So, so by, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, right, this, this demarcation between magic and empiricism is really sort of a modern phenomenon, right? Yeah, so um, I want to get to the rabbis. Now, you've mentioned them several times, which isn't surprising since we're talking about the Talmud. But Talmudic medicine seems, by definition, to depend on rabbis who were putting it out there. And the term rabbinization was new to me. Uh, it really caught my attention, and I, I scribbled in the margin on, on the PDF, not the book. Uh, how do you rabbinize something? So could you tell us what is rabbinization and what purpose did it serve? Yeah, this this is this is a term that's um, becoming more and more used as a topic of inquiry in the field. And um, in general, it, it can describe several different types of phenomenon. Um, for instance, um, one way that that term can be used is how the rabbis absorbed non-rabbinic ideas or culture and then turn them into their own. Right, so they rabbinize something that's originally either either non-rabbinic or in some cases not even non-Jewish. Um, another way that it gets used is sort of the reverse, which is how rabbinic ideas can permeate non-rabbinic Jewish culture. So basically the, the, um, the influence of, of rabbinic culture on, on non-rabbinic Jewish culture. So it sort of works in both directions as I understand it. Now, in terms of the context of my book, the reason that I bring this in is that one of the arguments of the book is that the rabbis essentially uh, adopt and adapt non-rabbinic and in many cases, uh, apparently even non-Jewish medical ideas, and then they rabbinize them, by which I mean they, they turn them into their own. They begin to attribute them to rabbis. In some cases, it's hard to prove, but it appears based on parallels uh, that they even depaganize them in some cases, right? They take out those parts after they borrow from pagan medicine, for instance. They they take out those parts that are not that are uncomfortable for them, right? So they Judaize them, so to speak, or take out anything that that they wouldn't want to be part of the Jewish community, and they manipulate them in other ways to basically conform to Jewish law. So you know, in essence. The rabbis rabbinize these therapies in part because they want to downplay or even hide the outside origins of the therapies and to ultimately be in control uh, of how the Jewish population would practice them and how they'll get integrated into Jewish life. So it really is in some ways about control and authority. Uh, and I show this in the book by doing a literary analysis of the therapies. So um, m most of the therapies, not all of them, but many of the therapies follow actually a, a simple formula, which, is, which basically is for this disease, bring these materials or drugs, prepare them in such and such a way and apply them as follows. And then if not do this, right? So there's sort of this basic formula. Now, many of those uh, formulas are anonymous, but we do get cases where a rabbi basically gets added in and the formula basically stays the same, except there's just now a rabbi that appears. So uh, this is just sort of a, like an easy case case to show how 
Uh, presumably it started out anonymous, borrowed from the outside, and then the Talmud basically says, well, this a rabbi said this, right? So that's sort of the easiest, easiest example that, that one can find in the case of the Talmudic therapies. So that's essentially what I mean by rabbinization in the book. But again, this is, this is a topic that a lot of scholars are becoming interested in, uh, in a variety of different contexts in ancient Judaism related to basically the relationship between rabbinic culture and non-rabbinic culture. Well, thank you. And I wanted to get also to the incantation bowls, uh, which seem to have an important role in situating Talmudic medicine in a broader historical context. So I wonder, would you explain what the incantation bowls are? You mentioned them earlier and what their historical significance is. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, So the incantation bowls are uh, essentially clay artifacts that were excavated in Sasanian Mesopotamia, uh, usually dated to around five or 600 of the common era. So basically the same time and place as the Babylonian Talmud. And on the inside of these clay bowls, which are usually this, and they come in different shapes and sizes, but usually the size of a cereal bowl, are, are uh, incantations written by scribes, usually in a spiral shape uh, in different Aramaic dialects, including Jewish Babylonian Aramaic, as well as Mandaic and Syriac. And there are thousands of these bowls. Uh, we, we have um, we have knowledge of, of at least 2,000, and I've heard recently of a lot more, uh, of a higher number, I should say. Uh, but we know of at least 2,000 in private and library collections all around the world. And what's so exciting about the, the scholarship on the bulls is that many new ones are being published for the very first time in critical editions by some of the world's foremost ph- philologists, who it's a very difficult thing to, to publish these bulls. And they're doing such a wonderful job doing this. So basically, what we're getting is a whole new corpus from this time period uh, alongside the Talmud, which is extraordinary, right? This is a very big deal, obviously, because for so many so many decades and centuries now, all we've really had is the Talmud. So basically, there's now emerging this whole other corpus. Now, we've known about the bulls for a long time, actually, but it's really only now, I feel, that scholars are trying to, to really take them seriously and to integrate them into the study of Babylonian Ju- Judaism and to compare them and contrast them with what's in the Talmud. So um, again, the reason that this is important in the context of my book is because the bulls were essentially used to heal clients, right? Uh, and that's why they're relevant for studying Talmudic medicine. So they basically give us a good comparanda uh, with the Talmudic medical passages. Uh, and obviously, they're more magical than they are empirical, empirical in nature. Now, another thing that's interesting I would just add is that um, the bowls are, and one of the reasons that I'm fascinated by them, is that they're some of the best evidence that we have for intercultural activity, by which I mean that the Jewish bowls, Jewish Aramaic bowls, were produced by Jewish scribes, but many of them were presumably produced for non-Jewish clients. And the reason that we know this is because the standard practice of the bowls was to name the clients by name in the spells. So we literally have the names of the clients. And so uh, based on those names, it seems clear that some of the Jewish bulls, not all of them, but some of them were written for Christian, Zoroastrian, and pagan clients. And so this basically shows that there was interaction between these communities. Another aspect of this is that the, the spells themselves often invoke different religious traditions embedded within them. So for instance, there are Jewish bulls that invoke, it's rare, but some Jewish bulls that invoke Jesus or pagan deities, etc. So there's basically a syncretism within the spells themselves. Now, finally, I would add um, that, you know, where I think this is all leading, at least from the perspective of, of scholars who are interested in Talmud, you know, the million dollar question, so to speak, is what the, what the precise relationship is between the bulls and the Talmud, or between the bull scribes and their clients on the one hand and the rabbis on the other. And so again, going back to questions of rabbinization, this is sort of relevant as well in that context as well. And so there's clearly a great deal of overlap between the rabbis and the bulls or the Talmud and the bulls, but also huge differences as well. And so scholars are just now, I feel for the first time, really trying to flesh this out more. And so in my opinion, this, this is 
you know, one of the more cutting edge areas of research in Talmudic studies, I think, uh, if, if for no other reason than it's just new data. And in my opinion, I think has the potential to yield uh, significant and important new insights. And I hope challenge some of the basic longstanding assumptions in the field of, of Babylonian Jewish history. And so, um, so there's a lot more that I could say about the bulls, but I think I'll leave it there. Yeah, well, I can see how that would be an entire topic unto itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Um, yes, it, it is, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's really fascinating to think of an, a, a huge corpus of knowledge within a set of, I mean, a lot of bowls. You're describing a lot of yes, bowls. But, yes, yeah, you know, thousands. I mean, so it's it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, just a quick question. Who who came up with the spells, and do we know that, and who created the bowls? So uh, we don't – I mean, we don't have the names. Uh, as far as I know, there's there's no bowl that mentions the name of the scribe who produced the bowls. So – um, it's a bit it's it, it's a bit ambiguous. We're not totally sure, but um, there are some theories about who these scribes were. Uh, various, obviously, they were they were scribes. They could write, uh, which was rare at that time period. This was a basically an elite activity. Um, but we don't really know. I mean, it's a it's a bit mysterious to be totally honest. So I think that's sort of again one of the big questions is who were these people who produced them? There are some bowls, by the way, that that have. And a lot of the bulls have biblical quotations on them. So there's various, you know, various points of overlap between, um, you know, quote unquote, religious writing and magical writing in the bulls that we find. So, again, so many questions and very few answers at this point. And I think that's why it's such an exciting field. Yeah. Okay. well, maybe we'll return to that another time. Um, well, Jason, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I did want to ask you what you are working on next or possibly what you're working on right now. Sure. Yeah. Well, the Magic Bowls, uh, this is something that I'm becoming increasingly interested in. And I recently co-organized a conference on the topic, which was really great. And I'm um, in the process of working on an edited volume of essays on that topic and, and writing a few essays on that topic as well. So that's definitely on the horizon. And then I'm actually beginning a new trajectory in my research on what's called Judeo-Persian literature. This is uh, essentially medieval Persian literature written by Jews in Hebrew characters. Uh, and so it's, it's really sort of different than what I just talked about. Uh, so I'm taking my research in a new direction, which is exciting for me. Wow, fascinating. Um, well, it, it's a really interesting topic, not one that um, non-Talmudic scholars may know about at all. So um, I, I recommend that people dive into it, even if you are not a Talmudic scholar, because there's a lot to be found there. If you're interested in medicine or Judaism or history. Um, so the book, once again, everyone is Medicine in the Talmud, Natural and Supernatural Therapies Between Magic and Science. And it will be out in June, very shortly. And Jason, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure.